Well, I'm going to begin this morning with a, um, a video. You know, the, um, the folks who are Penn and Teller, which is a couple of guys that do, um, they're like illusionists, sort of magicians, sort of stand-up comics, and very uh, bright guys. Um, and Penn Gillette, one of them, is an outspoken atheist and had an experience a number of years ago where after one of his shows, a man who was there the night before came back again and he brought a Bible with him and um, was, was sincerely complimentary of the show and asked him to even sign a, a booklet. And then he gave him this New Testament and encouraged him to consider who Jesus was. And um, afterwards, I think that experience so um, moved um, Penn that he, he sat down and got a video and, and just, it's a five minute long video. I'm going to show you 45 seconds or so of it, where he makes some interesting observations. Remember, this man is an atheist, outspoken atheist, and here's what he has to say. So go ahead and play that, that clip. Talked to me, and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt, that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So if I believe a truck is bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now, those of you that know Penn and Teller thought I was going to show you a really funny video, and it was a bait and switch, and I showed you this heavy thing about hell, and you're like, ah, so sorry about that. It's, a, it's just helpful for us, though, to think about this, the significance. If I do really believe there is a heaven and a hell, and there is a way to avoid one and receive the other, why wouldn't I want to share that? And I wonder, I asked this question this morning, how would you answer the question? Maybe you've been asked this before. If someone comes up to you and says, do you believe in a literal hell? Now, you're perplexed, right? Because if on the one hand you say, well, no, not a literal hell, then you're not a biblical person because the Bible is so clear that, of the reality of hell. And if you say yes, then the people instantly feel like, well, what kind of God do you believe in? How can a loving God send people to hell? And all of these, these ideas, some of which are misconceptions, start to come out. And they think of people who have used hell in scare tactics, and there's quite a bit of preaching that does that, try to scare you out of hell, and, and miss the grace of the gospel. And this morning, here's my thesis. So before you think, oh man, this is going to be a heavy topic, he's going to preach to us about hell. I'm not fire and brimstone, brimstone at all, if you, know, if you know my preaching style. And yet, I'm committed to the word of God. And here's my thesis. A loving God warns people of hell and wins them out of it. That even the warning is an act of grace. That, like, like Penn said, if, if there is a hell and you don't warn people, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about this? Well, we see a God who is even warning his enemies. That's how much he loves us. 
So a loving God warns and wins us out of it. So if you want to grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at this, um, this parable. Uh, it's verses 19 through 31. And I'd like, as you're getting there, I'll, I'll kind of set up where I'm going to go with this. I would like to look at some misconceptions about hell. And then I want to look at the specifics of the characters in this parable, in particular the rich man. And then I want to look at why this is good news, why God is good, and what he is saving us into. So there are three misconceptions that I thought useful to consider this morning. The first one is this, the misconception that, it's, that hell is only for morally bad people. Now, if you look at this passage in verse 19, it says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. That's what it tells us. We also know that there's a gate, so he has a big estate and probably a big mansion. He's rich, but it doesn't say anything like, this man got rich by cheating people, this man did things that were against the law of God. No, he just simply was wealthy. So a misconception would be that hell is only for morally bad people, but this guy's not described as a morally bad person. He just happens to be rich. Another misconception is that if you read this wrong, rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. But there are some problems with that. One is there are a ton of very rich saints. Abraham, who's mentioned in this parable, was incredibly rich. He was blessed by God so abundantly. He had all these livestock and all these servants, and he was really overflowing with material wealth. And we're going to read in a couple of weeks the story of Zacchaeus, who was a rich person who got rich by questionable practices. And yet, when Jesus comes into his house, he gets saved. So there are both rich and poor people in heaven, and there are rich and poor people in hell. And you, can, you could read this and say, well, clearly everyone then who's poor goes to heaven. But there is a poor person sitting at the gate who has a heart for God, and then there's, uh, there are other poor people who, who their idol is their condition, grumbling about their condition, what they don't have. It can become all-consuming that they don't have what somebody else has. And even though they're poor, they can be easily caught up in the idolatry that puts God off the throne in their hearts and something else there. So rich people are not the only ones to go to hell or heaven, and poor people are not the only ones to go to hell or heaven. And then a third one is that God sends us there against our will. Many people say, the minute you say, I do believe what the Bible says, that there's a literal heaven and a literal hell, and people will say, how can a loving God send people to hell? And right there is a problem, that God never sends anyone to hell. In fact, what we see in this is God is reaching out his hand saying, come to me, I want to help you. I've got a way for you to avoid this. And people say, no, I want this. I don't want you. And they choose it. And we get this image of some kind of like deep abyss with a locked cage and people going, God, let me out. Why are you so mean to me? And, And that's not the picture in the Bible at all of it. It's a picture of God saying, come to me. Come on. Come on. I want to help you. Take my hand. And they're going, no, I don't want you. I don't want you. No. That's the picture we see. So last Sunday, we looked at a parable, also dealing, in that case, with wealth, but it was aimed, the parable of the the manager that was dishonest, it was aimed at people who, who wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. This week, we see another parable, and this time it's aimed at people who did not want to hear what Jesus had to say. A loving God is so loving, he even warns his enemies. 
Now, if you back up a little bit to verse 14, it sets that context. It says this. This is after the parable from last week. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You justify yourselves. You love money. God knows your hearts. And then he gives this, this parable. Something that's important to understand from both of these parables is that what we do with this life is setting the course for what comes after this life. So how we conduct ourselves, what we do with what God entrusts to us matters a lot because it's the external manifestation of the internal condition of the heart. And so what we are doing matters eternally. We saw that last week and we see that this week as well. That's very important to recognize it. Now in this parable, the foil, if you will. The topic is money, but it's not really about money. It's about idolatry, and you could fill into this parable almost anything you want. You could could have a politician whose idol is his approval ratings. You could have a brilliant mind whose idol is the number of publications he has and the elite institutions where he's been invited to lecture. You could have a gifted preacher whose idol is his eloquence and ability to inspire or motivate people. Fill in the blank. It could be any number of things. In this case, it's a rich man, but I actually think in here, the idol is power. It's power that this man is really attached to. And we'll see some things about that as we look at it. So let's dig into the passage. The first thing you need to notice is the significance of names. And I started our service off this morning by bringing up the idea of identity and names and being named by God or being without a name. Every single parable in the entire Bible that Jesus taught, there is no one named except here. All of them are more general. So he'll say something like, a sower went out to sow, or a merchant went searching for fine pearls, or the kingdom of heaven is like a fisherman cleaning his net, or something like that. Here is the only place that a person is named. His name is Lazarus. And what is really odd is Lazarus has a name and the other person in here does not. It's just the rich man and Lazarus. And if you've been around any older um, translations of the Bible or some study Bibles, sometimes this parable is called the parable of Lazarus and Dives. D-I-V-E-S, Dives. It's just the Latin Vulgate word for rich. So they kind of give him a name, but he doesn't really have a name. His name is Rich, not like Rich but wealthy. His name is wealthy, with all due respect. Richard. Um, His name is wealthy, and the other guy's name is Lazarus, which comes from the name Eleazar, which means God is my help. So the parable right away tells us one man is reaching out to God as his help. The other man has become his idol. His identity has just been consumed. And we see a couple of things about hell, some descriptors about it that are very common. You've heard of the concept of fire being connected to hell. And even in here, he says, he says, come and and cool my tongue because it's in anguish because of these flames. Do I believe that there are literal flames in hell? Probably not. But here's why I think it's a useful indicator about or a metaphor for us. The way that fire works, combustion, is you have oxygen in the air, you have some kind of a fuel source like a piece of wood, and then you apply heat to it. And when that happens, there is a, a, 
a falling apart, a disintegration of the log. The molecules that were once together begin to separate, and you get byproducts, carbon dioxide in pure combustion, carbon monoxide in impure combustion. You get heat, you get colorful flame, you'll get some carbon, you get charring, you get all these different things. Matter doesn't disappear, it just disintegrates. But you, and it can't go the other way, which is the other image here. There's a chasm fixed. So you can't take, let's say, a log that's been burned and then undo that and make it back into a log. Once it's disintegrated, it's back down to fundamental things. Hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, all these different things. And what we see here is once this chasm is fixed, you can't go back. The reason that fire is used uh, to illustrate hell is because there is a disintegration that happens of the person. So let's say this person's name was Mike initially. Mike, born by, you know, God created all of us, so here's Mike, and then Mike becomes wealthy. Now it's Mike the rich man, and then eventually, as my idol takes over, Mike is no longer even human anymore, I'm just the rich man. You see, there's kind of a disintegration of my humanity. That's what happens. That is a picture of what hell is. So in its purest definition, hell is the absence of God, but what that mechanically looks like is God holds all things together. It is it is he who is the one who gives us all good things. He is the one who names us. We are named for him. We are made in his image. But when we are completely separated from him, all that is left is the char. It's the personless idol. And so the rich man, look at what he's doing, or look at what he's not doing. First of all, he's not asking for heaven anywhere in here. He's not saying, oh, please, I've made a mistake. I want to worship you. Would you give me another chance? Because he's disintegrated down to just his wealthy status, his, his wealth and coveting, he doesn't even know how to ask. He doesn't want that. He has fully rejected God, and he's not saying, let me out. Furthermore, notice who he talks to, Abraham. He's not even talking to God, so he's not, he's not praying. Prayer has ceased. There is no prayer in this man's life. And look what he is doing. He's still in power. Abraham, send Lazarus to come and dip his finger and cool my tongue. He's in hell and he's commanding someone in heaven to serve him. Do you see that? It's, he has become power itself, but in an ugly, decrepit, dead form. And then he goes on and says, no, wait, send, again, now he's, now he's commanding Abraham. You know, far be it from me, the day I meet Abraham, that I would ever command anything of him. The father of the faith, right? The patriarch, the one who trusted God's promises and walked to a land that his fathers weren't from. You know, and he's, Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brothers. Now you might think, and some of the commentators were divided on this one, you might think, We'll see, he does have a little bit of goodness left in him. There's some compassion in there. At least he's concerned for his brothers. I don't think that's actually what's here. I think what's here is somebody who is justifying his situation. At least send Lazarus to my five brothers, then they'll get good information. Unlike me, here I am in anguish. It's not my fault. I've been given a bad deal. And he's in there grumbling and complaining, and he's still caught up in power commanding people from the grave. That is a picture of hell. He's no longer a person anymore. He's just complaining about power and commanding people. And so what does Jesus say when he says that? They have Moses and the prophets just like you had, which is a reference to the Bible, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, which would have been their whole Bible. They have Moses and the prophets, which we know talk about Jesus. 
and let them believe them. But if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, then they wouldn't believe even if someone were to rise back from the dead. Now, you and I know exactly what he's referring to here. And I, I, I'm speculating here on this one point. I'm not sure the chronology of when he taught this and when he raised his friend, a different Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany from the grave. But either Jesus knew what he was going to do or he had already done it and he knew that he was going to rise, Jesus was going to rise from the grave. But go back to Lazarus of Bethany for a minute. Do you know what happened? Four days he's dead in the grave and there's all this big commotion. All these people are mourning. And he had sisters that were crying and it was just terrible. Four days. He was a loved man, Lazarus of Bethany. And Jesus goes there and, he, and in front of everybody he prays and he says, Lazarus, come out. And try to picture that mummy walking out of that tomb, wrapped up in the white, I mean, like a mummy, that's what you'd see. Come, he comes out, he's like, you know, probably tied up a little bit too, so he's walking like this, right? That would have left a mark. Everyone that saw that would be like, you would think, everyone that saw that would have immediately bowed down at Jesus' feet. But you know what happens? A ton of people do bow down at Jesus' feet, but then a number of religious leaders go off and they plot not only to kill Jesus for doing miracles, they, have to, they plot how they're going to kill Lazarus too because so many people are believing because of that. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, they won't believe, he says to the other Lazarus, the made-up one in this parable. And I think he's giving his enemies an opportunity to consider, are your hearts hard or not? And it's helpful to remember something too. A number of Pharisees come to faith a number of these religious leaders actually trust in Christ. One of them is Nicodemus, who sneaks there at night. By the end, he's taking Jesus' body off of the cross and placing it in a tomb and caring for his dead body. Lazarus, I mean, uh, Nicodemus was a teaching ruler. He was one of the Pharisees. And he heard the warnings. He heard the invitation to life and became a Christian. There were many that did, actually. So we can't just say a whole people group rejected him. But I think the culture of the Pharisees and the leaders was a hardness of heart against Jesus. And so if we don't believe the word of God, miracles aren't going to happen. And how many people say, if God would just show up right now and, and, and display himself or prove himself to me, then I would believe. And the testimony is against us. If you don't believe the written word of God, then there's nothing he's going to do. There's no miracle he could perform that would convince you. It would only further harden your heart, which is exactly what happens here. Now, this is a picture, this is one characterization of one sin smoldering. If hell is fire and disintegration, sin in our lives is like the smoldering of that fire burning, and it's growing bigger and bigger. It's like addiction. You know, the way addiction works is you get a hit of something and you get pleasure, and so you want more. So you go and, and get another hit, but you get less pleasure the next time. So you have to get more of the hit and you get less return each time until pretty soon you end up overdosing because there is no volume of the substance that can give you enough pleasure. The little bit of flame that this idol is in our heart right now in 80 years of life or 100 years of life is tolerable. A complainer, a grumbler, a materialist, a person consumed with whatever. But translate that out a million years in eternity and it gets into a big heinous thing. It is an ugly picture. It shows us the disintegration if you want to read some very interesting characterizations of this, C.S. Lewis has a brilliant book called The Great Divorce. It has nothing to do with marriage. It's about the divorce from heaven and hell, where these two trajectories are set. What we do in this life sets what, we, what we're headed for in the next. So in this life, now here's a, here's a really positive thing. Not only does he warn us about hell, but he wins us from it. In this life, 
we can start to experience the kind of heaven that will be forever, which is getting to serve a good God. We think in our, in our broken selves, we think if I can just escape from God, if I can break out of his confines and get across that chasm on my own, then it's going to be amazing. I can do anything I want and I will have true freedom. I confess to nine o'clock, so I'll confess to you as well that I actually like the music of ACDC. I, I know, I know. It, it's the guitars, it's the simplicity of it. All, all the music sounds the same, and it's just real driving. It's kind of upbeat. And I find myself, I'll flip through the stations in the car, and I'll come to a certain ACDC song, and I really like the rhythm of it, and I'm like, yeah. And then I start realizing which one it is. It's the song Highway to Hell. And I have to turn it off on principle. But... I, I have listened to the lyrics of it, and in there they say, I'm on a highway to hell, and all my friends are going to be there too. And they are setting up a picture, of, a picture of heaven in a distorted way, that it will be a great celebration with incredible freedom. And it's a false picture of the wedding feast that Christ portrays in the scriptures. They think if I get there and have true freedom, which means no God, no, none of God's influence, it'll be amazing. But the exact opposite is true. In this parable, we see the rich man alone, and we see Abraham with Lazarus and all of the company of heaven, and he has become isolated. And you know why? Because when your sin projects itself out for a million years, you become utterly intolerable, and everyone else does there too. You can't stand yourself. They can't stand you. There will be no community. It will disintegrate community as well. And conversely, Here's what he wins us to. We think if I could get free from him, I would have real freedom, and instead we become slaves to the idol. But what he says is, come and serve me. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself, and I will give you life. And not just life as my servant. He said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. I call you friends. And he shares with us how his kingdom works. And he says, come with me. Come, repent of that. Put the idol down and let me be your Lord. Come on to my team. Come to my banquet. Feast sumptuously with me and I will give you a new name. You will be named for my goodness. You will have my character and my heart in you. You will have joy forever. And you'll have all those material blessings and all that stuff too. But your great highest gift and prize will be the Lord himself and you will have fellowship with others, which is really what we all want. And so Jesus is saying, Put to death those fires, whatever it is. And each one of us, if we're honest, if we are honest in the moment of quiet, we know what is smoldering in there. And if it was to get onto our hearts and get control, what it would turn into, just play it out. Just play it out. Think, what's it going to look like if I keep going down this path in a thousand years? What's that going to look like? Now play out the other thing. If I keep turning over everything to God, what's that going to look like? What is it going to look like to be in his presence? To have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. To have him say, hey, have you met Abraham? He's been here for a while, but he's pretty awesome. Check out Abraham. We get to have that kind of fellowship. A loving God not only warns us about hell, but he wins us from it by taking hell onto himself on the cross. He took hell for us so we don't have to. And he says, come on, come to me. Repent of your sin, turn away from it and make me your Lord and I will give you a name. I will invite you into my table. This is good news. It's hard, and I started out with that atheist, um, but he's right. If we have this good news, we ought to be sharing it liberally, freely with anyone who will listen, saying, come on, 
come to the party, all are welcome. There is a place for you at the Lord's table because it has so profoundly affected us. Let's lift this up to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. Jesus, I thank you that you even love your enemies and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, we hold before you those little flames, those little idols that are tempting us. And we ask you to give us the strength and power to replace them, that you would be on the throne of our hearts, that you would be our God, and that we would delight in you above all things. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.